0: Hi. This is Andrew and this is Keen on The Daily Now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody. New year, January the 5th, 2023. We are going somewhere. We're not quite sure where, but it has to be somewhere. Writers, of course, are always intrigued with going somewhere. And they're particularly, I think, intrigued by chasing something that doesn't exist, particularly utopias. We've done a couple of interesting shows on utopias last year. One with the uh, the writer Akash Kapoor on his own personal quest for utopia uh, in a place called Auroraville. Uh, it's a wonderful book, Better to Have Gone. And then uh, a month ago, a very different kind of conversation about utopia with Uh, the distinguished UC Berkeley economist, Brad delong He has a new book out, Slouching Towards Utopia, Economic History of the 20th Century, in which he suggests we're going to utopia, but not very happy about it. Um, As I said, writers love to find things that don't really exist. And who is more an authority on journeying to places that do or don't exist than my guest today? I'm thrilled and honored that Pico Aya, one of the world's great travel writers, thinkers, uh, authorities both on the inner and outer world will be joining us. And he is doing exactly what I've talked about in the introduction. He has a new book out, The Half-Done Life in Search of Paradise. He is on the road for utopia. And uh, fortunately he's also in a concrete place in Nara in Japan where he lives or he spends part of his life, and he's joining us today. Pico,
1: uh, happy new year. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so happy to see you across the ocean. Happy new yeah. year. Yeah,
0: well, this is real. Is it real, Pico, or is it utopian to do all this video thing?
1: <laughs> it's tempting, uh, you might agree, to think of it as dystopian. I think of it as just a real instrument to promote our utopian or dystopian, distorted or true ideas. But um, I've never been a great fan of technology, but I'm so grateful that it makes things like this possible. I wouldn't get to see you or talk to you probably without this. Vice versa, although you are going to be in
0: California um, next week. I won't be here. You're doing a big tour of the United States. We'll talk about that later. Real Pico in person rather than just digitally. So, Pico, am I right to say that writers are always fascinated by something, things that don't exist, which accounts for their fascination with utopias?
1: I would say humans are fascinated by what doesn't exist. And maybe the writer's job is to cut through those projections and illusions occasionally. You know, I was amused to see your featuring that book, slouching towards utopia. And I think my book might almost be called slouching away from utopia. In other words, I think it's the notion of paradise and thinking of paradise that gets in the way of our uh, appreciating it or seeing that it's right here and now. So I'm not a great believer in utopia. And I probably am a great believer in, in realism. And I think maybe that's what the writer has to offer. Um, but you're right, as a human being, So we're always fascinated with what's around the next corner and also what's in our heads, which is probably the most unreal thing of all.
0: You are a storyteller in, in every sense, Pico. So tell me the story of the half-known life in Search of Paradise. Why did you choose to write it?
1: Well, it came out of lockdown and uh, I, ha- 20 hours after um, lockdown was uh, announced in, in California in March 2020, my poor mother, who was 88 then, was rushed into the hospital in an ambulance because she was losing blood very quickly. And of course, hospitals were closed to visitors at that point. But as soon as she was out and back home, I took three flights through these ghost town airports from my little apartment here in Japan to be with her. In Santa Barbara, and I was with her for the next six and a half months, not traveling as much as I might otherwise. And she was wavering between life and death. And sitting in one place, as I usually don't, seemed the perfect time to think first, what my 48 years of constant travel had added up to. And second, how could we make the most of confinement? And I think the pandemic underlined for all of us what is always true, which is we're living in a state of uncertainty. You and I can't say what's going to happen tomorrow or even tonight. So I was thinking, how can we make um, the state of uncertainty as warm and comfortable as possible? How can I find a better life or a better self or a better world even right here, given that I don't have the chance to chase utopia across the globe? So, you know, I think one way or another, many people during the pandemic were addressing variations on this theme. How can we find paradise in the middle of, the real world and in the face of death, because death was breathing down our necks for many seasons.
0: What You use the the P word, Pico, uh, paradise. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, and I think it's a deceiving word in many cases. And in this case, I was just thinking maybe calm and contentment. How can we find what we need, given we were stuck at home, there was a mysterious virus that was paralyzing our world and our economy. None of us knew when or whether it would end. How can we find some degree of satisfaction there? Because I think that's a variation of the same question we're always asking, because the world is always in a state of turmoil. As I'm talking to you, there are you know stor- huge, unprecedented storms battering San Francisco, and probably you and the people around you are asking some variation of this question. (laughs) How do I survive this? And is there anything good that can come of it? So you,
0: so so the Half-Known Life is um, a narrative of staying in one place or a a narrative of movement? Is it a a traditional Pico Aya travel book? And I I don't mean that in any pejorative sense. Mm. Or is it a book about standing still, of staying put?
1: Yes, I mean, this is a perfect question. And it's, it's a book of, of sitting still and thinking back on a life of travels. So I wasn't traveling as much as I might during the pandemic. But thanks to that enforced retreat, I was able to uh, put 48 years of travel into a kind of sequence and see what it had added up to. Uh, and as you know, um, I mean, I've always felt that travel in any form is how we go and collect ingredients as it were from a farmer's market. But it's only sitting still that allows us to put it together into a meal. I mean, it's sitting still that turns the sights we've seen perhaps into insights or takes the experience that we've had and translates it into a kind of meaning. So during the pandemic, I had this rare opportunity to really put my whole life into meaning. So it was a retrospective still life look at um, a half century of travel.
0: Pico, do you think all travel is memoir, all travel writing is memoir, uh, which may account for its
1: popularity at the moment? Oh, I, I, I like that question. And and I think um, I would agree. I mean, to some extent, all memoir is fiction and all memoir is travel of a kind. But But you're right, because I think travel is not really about movement, it's about being moved. And to that extent, all our great trips, do happen once we're back home. That you or I may go to Bali for two weeks, but we're hopefully spending the next two months or maybe two years or two decades processing that experience, seeing what we learned from it, trying to think what moved or surprised us most about it. And so that, to that extent, all the travel does take place retrospectively at home, sitting in one place. And I've always found, and I'm sure you're the same, that it's very hard. Um, to be moved unless you're sitting still. In other words, if you're zigzagging across New York City or San Francisco tomorrow, you may have all kinds of potentially life-changing experiences, but the life is only changed at the end of it when you're you're making sense of it or trying to see how it would move you to to live differently. So yeah, I think um, all travel writing is a recollection of um, something that you've seen and felt. Uh, and and thought. And you know, Wordsworth said that writing is, uh, is emotion recollected in tranquility, writing is probably commotion recollected in tranquility. But I would agree with you that it's, it's mostly looking back to what has passed. I'm particularly
0: intrigued by the title The Half Known Life, of course, it raises the specter of the unknown half, uh, which maybe we'll get to But in terms of this stillness that you experienced during lockdown in the COVID period, what did you or what have you learned about yourself, Pico? Um, and, and, and what of that
1: did you put into this new book? So I think all of us probably during the pandemic first learned not to take anything for granted. And as a result of that, we're powerfully reminded to think about what we most care about, what we love, and therefore what we want to stay close to. And so I think like so many people, um, I was reminded that the essential things are my wife, my mother, the songs that are always going through my head, whatever is inside me. You know, living part of the time down the road from you in California, I once had my house burnt down in a wildfire and I lost everything in the world. And in some ways it was a really good reminder that home is not the place where you live. Home is essentially what lives inside you, that internal stuff. And I thought a lot about our house burning down at the time of the pandemic, partly for that reason, because it so dramatically reminded us of what is essential. And partly also because even as my house burning down and my losing everything in the world made so many things impossible, it made other things possible. It liberated me in certain ways and opened doors and windows that might otherwise have been closed. And I think um, the pandemic did that in in certain ways, because I think all of us were speeding round blind curves uh, at a post-human pace before the pandemic and when suddenly we were brought to a halt, it gave all of us the chance really to think, is this the road I want to be going on Um, and is this the life I want to be living? And I've been moved at how many people have chosen to live differently as a result of the pandemic. I'm not sure that I have done that exactly, but I've certainly decided, I'm not so young now, these are the things I really want to devote the rest of my life to principally writing. And I think one of the other things as a lifelong traveler that the pandemic reminded me of was um, a depth of experience has nothing to do with distance. You know, I've always loved Henry David Thoreau, who says, it matters not how far you go. The further commonly, the worse. What matters is how alive you are. And of all of us, we're really thinking about aliveness more than ever during the pandemic and and celebrating those moments when we could feel most alive even with death around the corner. So you know, in a very simple way, one of the things I delighted in was uh, taking walks around my home. And uh, we weren't on planes as much as we normally would be and the local health club was shuttered. So every morning my wife and I started taking uh, a walk just on the road behind my mother's house. Uh, and it was usually early morning and you're in California, so you know how just as the sun is coming up behind a ridge, part of the hills behind us were just flooded with golden light. The valleys were often in thick fog and we would turn around and we see the Pacific Ocean just scintillant in the distance and the islands so sharp in the clear air, I could count every ridge on them. And I would think, my heavens, this is as beautiful as anything I would go around the world to see in uh, Cape Town or Rio de Janeiro, here it is in my backyard. And my parents have lived in that property more than 50 years. I'd never walked to the end of the road, which is 20 minutes away until lockdown precipitated that. So it's a tiny example that I'm sure many people can relate to of how suddenly my eyes were open to what I'd been sleepwalking past for literally half a century. And I was grateful for that. And And I didn't miss travel during the pandemic because I found that there was so much to see right around me.
0: Yeah, I actually had a similar experience in Berkeley. um, When uh, I, where I was living during the lockdown, I would walk in the hills in the, I'm not a morning person in the afternoon, just before sunset and the same occurred to me. You mentioned Thoreau and of course, when we think of Thoreau, we think of nature. Um, How central in the half Uh, known life, Pico, is nature, is your, perhaps your rediscovery of it?
1: Not so central. I'm principally an urban creature, and I'm much less sensitive to nature than many of my friends. But I think as life, my life has gone on, and as the life of the world has gone on, I come more and more (laughs) to bow to nature, assuming that it has a kind of logic and a plan for me much better than my plans for it. And I think what really hits me is forest fires, typhoons, the storm you're going through as we speak, hurricanes, they're all reminding, us. they're humbling us the way travel always does. And they're reminding us how little we're in control of our lives and how much we have to defer to and adjust ourselves to forces so much larger than we are, whether it's a pandemic um, virus or a wildfire. So I think of nature just as a useful force that puts us in place and reminds us how small we are. And when I called my book, The Half-Known Life, a part of that was a call to humility because I feel that we're living in a time when we seemingly occupy the age of information, but I feel we know less about the rest of the world than ever before. So that's one reason I begin the book by talking about Iran and North Korea, which for so many of us are just names or places on a map and which is so different when you encounter them in the flesh. But at a deeper level, I feel it's everything we don't know and can't control or anticipate that determines our lives. Whether When we fall in love, when uh, suddenly a pandemic enters our lives, when a car approaches ours on the wrong side of the road, uh, when we have a great epiphany on a mountaintop in in Tibet, we can't begin to explain those things. And I think that's why they so... Transport us. Um, in other words, it's that the things that we don't know um, that really shape shape who we are. Uh, and I almost think of our lives as like living in a little illuminated tent up in the Himalayas. And we may have lanterns, we probably have flashlights, but still, we're surrounded by this vast. Um, darkness, whether it's the darkness of the heavens with pinpricked with stars or just the darkness around those majestic mountains. But we're living in a tiny circle of light encircled by everything we can't hope to know. And I think that's an important thing to be reminded of. And so nature is 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 a part of that because it's a vastness that we can't comprehend in every sense.
0: You seem scale Pico, in avoiding temptation, whether it's the temptation of nature, perhaps, as a traveller. <laughs> or the temptation of religion you make it clear in your work and in the book that you're not a religious person you quote thomas merton in the book but this idea of humility can one really learn humility particularly in our age of hubris without religion i'm in your camp i'm not particularly religious either have you ever been tempted i i'm sure those temptations have occasionally appeared particularly in your travels, in Iran and Israel and other highly religious communities?
1: Yes, in fact, I, I, so I'm really, I, I think like anyone, I have, I have a longing and I have an openness to experience and, um, and really moved by the sacred, though I'm very happy not to encase it in, in theories or texts or, text or ideologies. So for example, as you say, when I describe going to Jerusalem in the center of this book, What strikes me is I'm not Christian, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not Muslim, and yet I moved almost to tears by that place. And I I remember when I'm in Jerusalem, every morning in the pre-dawn dark, and every afternoon as the sun is beginning to set, I would find myself almost irresistibly pulled to this little chapel in a far corner of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's nothing there. It's a ragged place with a single tiny flickering candle. And who knows why it so moves me. It's like meeting somebody who has this powerful charisma. And you can't explain it away, but you can't stop feeling the charisma. And I feel that about Jerusalem and Varanasi and other places, which I think is a good thing because it reminds me, um, again, how little I know and how um, much more is going on in the universe. And I think there are more things um, on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy, even though, as you say, um, I, I don't have... Um, a religion. And one of the things uh, that so I have been tempted. I've spent uh, 31 years on and off with a group of Benedictine monks in Big Sur, California, not far from where you're sitting, but I'm not a Christian. Uh, but nonetheless, I learned from them about decency and focus and, and self-sacrifice, all the things anybody probably needs in a life. So um, I'm, I'm happy to to learn from religious people without the apparatus of thinking this way is the only way and um every other way is wrong because of course the fascination of jerusalem through millennia is that the city of faith is a city of conflict and on the one hand it so stirs almost any visitor because you can feel the ineffable the numinous there on the other hand in the Church of the holy sepulchre six christian group orders are all sleeping on the same roof. And the Franciscans will start smashing the Greek Orthodox with brooms if the Greek Orthodox monks step one inch over their territory and, and vice versa. And the Shia Muslims are at odds with the Sunni Muslims, the ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, um, shouting at their secular cousins. So it's a perfect microcosm for both the beauty of faith and the way humans turn religion into something divisive. And as you probably know, I spent 48 years talking and traveling with the Dalai Lama. And one thing that always impresses me about him is one of here he is one of the most respected religious figures on the planet. And He published a book that was titled Beyond Religion. In other words, he's had a front seat view on how religions can actually tear up the world and create divisions, even though They're notionally pledged to unity. Uh, And so he always stresses secular world and and science now because he feels that's universal as religions are not. Um, So I never want to deny the religious spirit, but I haven't felt a great inclination to attach myself to a single religious position and say this is the right or the only way.
0: You say you're moved by the sacred. If you're not religious, how do you know what is sacred and what isn't? You looked out at the Pacific Ocean when you're in Santa Barbara and the old church in Jerusalem. Mm. But why isn't that rotting shopping mall in, outside Santa Barbara or that slum in, in Jerusalem? Why isn't that more or less sacred? How can you determine sacredness if you're not religious? I, I don't know what you mean by that word even.
1: Well, I I love that, Andrew, and actually that's probably the whole point of of my book. And maybe I sp- I spoke sloppily when I referred to sacred, but I would say for somebody who's no expert on this, that the definition of holiness is to see no distinction between the sacred and the profane. So I couldn't agree with you more. And that if the Dalai Lama were right here, he would take as much delight and find as much to learn from the rotting shopping mall as from the church and, and from the Pacific Ocean. And actually, that's what I'm trying to get to at the end of this book, because as you remember, I find myself at one moment in Varanasi, the holy city of Yes. Uh, and it's the most uh, chaotic, frenzied, spooky, shocking place in all of chaotic, spooky, shocking India. Um, there are fires burning to the north and to the south that are uh, turning dead bodies into ash. Uh, when you walk through the little lanes of the old city, people are constantly racing past, takes, taking taking corpses on stretchers to be committed to the flames or to the water. There are naked ascetics walking all around, smeared in ash, who are living in graveyards and drinking from skulls to show their um, their contempt for very simple notions of piety, just as you were saying. Uh, and there are people gratefully uh, drinking in and bathing in the waters of the Holy River, which are said by the WHO to be 3,000 times beyond the maximal level safe for consumption. So it's a mad wild Hieronymous Bosch scene. And I happen to be of Hindu origin. Both my parents are from India. And even so, I was freaked out by this. And I was standing along the river at one point, surrounded by these you know, burning bodies. And two Tibetan monks arrived, uh, whom I know from New York City, one an old Tibetan man and one a younger American man who's a monk and in fact, an abbot of a Tibetan Buddhist temple. And the American monk looked at this scene he said, isn't this glorious? This is the whole human pageant. This is life and death and everything between. This is the reality that we have to embrace. And I think essentially he was saying the same as you because he's wiser than I. Don't don't say that over there is sacred and this over here is profane. It's, it's all the same. And this is the life we have to live with. The paradise we have to find is right here and now. In fact, I'm talking to you from Nara, Japan. And if I go to a temple down the road in Kyoto, Quite often at the entrance to a temple, written on the ground, it says, Look beneath your feet. In other words, don't search for the utopia, don't project it into the past or the future. If it's anywhere, it has to be right here. So I, I love your question and I absolutely agree with you. Um, that when I talked about moving by this being moved by the sacred, I was talking about obvious forms of sacredness, such as the church or, or the natural scripture of the ocean. But you're you couldn't be more right um, to an enlightened person. If there is such a thing everywhere is carrying light. And um, and I think one of the center points of the book for me was again in this time when the world is more connected than ever before and more divided to try to reach for those people who can see beyond division. So as you remember, I, I write about the Cistercian monk, Thomas yeah. Mudd, who after 27 years in his Catholic monastery found his moment of realization in front of some Buddhas in Sri Lanka. And the person he just talked to, the Dalai Lama, lifelong Buddhist, is moved to tears when he talks about the Gospels. So I think another definition of something that really at the heart of us is that it speaks to us regardless of our our, our tradition. A Buddhist may turn for instruction to Buddhist scriptures, but he's really moved when he sees a mosque or, as you said, when when in the right way he can see a, a rotting shopping mall.
0: You mentioned Merton, of course, a very profound thinker. And when I was thinking of Merton, reading the book and listening to Thomas More's Utopia comes to mind because, of course, he was the man who invented the concept, the word Utopia, which means in Latin, no place. Mm. Um, And it was meant as a reminder of the dangers, I think, of thinking too idealistically of establishing heaven on earth, written at a in the 16th century at a time of also like our own enormous political, cultural and technological upheaval. Do you think it, it takes a Merton or, um, or a Thomas More to really get this stuff to understand that life is only ever uh, half known and can never be fully known?
1: well i think a merton for example having given himself for 27 years to some degree to to contemplation and to inspecting the inner life he has a head start over the rest of us because most of us are zigzagging down the freeway from the lawyer's office to the shopping mall we haven't devoted as much of our time as he but i think any of us potentially can see it i love the fact that as you say thomas moore's Utopia is uh, means nowhere at all. <laughs> Funnily enough, just this morning, I was reading a piece by Hilary uh, Mantel, the novelist who portrays more as almost as a villain compared with... Mm, she's uh, not very keen on him. She's not very keen on him. But um, yes, I, you know, I, all of this reminds me that I was once doing an interview akin to this. And suddenly, unexpectedly, the interviewer said, what's your notion of God? And I said, reality. And... I wasn't thinking, but later I thought if I'd thought about it for a hundred years, I probably couldn't have come up with an answer truer to what I felt. So exactly as I was saying at the outset, I agree with Thomas More, that, or Merton probably, that the only paradise we can find is real life, because we are mortal, we're imperfect, and I think it doesn't do us any good to dream of perfection. Our challenge should be uh, living comfortably with imperfection and amidst the joys and constant sorrows uh, of, of the world. In fact, one of the things I appreciate about Thomas Merton is even though he was such a devoted Trappist monk in the Cistercian Order for all those years, he never believed in answers. And he was only interested in questions. And he felt that the point of life was not to find the answer to life or a paradise or a utopia, but to know how to live in answerlessness. Because most of the things that take place uh, to us and around us are inex- inexplicable. That's what I mean by, by the half-known life. You know, suddenly, uh, I, I'm sitting in my family's home and there are five-story flames all around us and my house is gone. I step into a temple and I talk to a woman, there's my future wife. Uh, I you know, wake up one day and suddenly a virus has paralyzed the world. Uh, I wake up another day and suddenly there's somebody at my door with a, a FedEx package and inside is a huge check, anonymous. I don't know who it came from. So, and I think all our lives are similarly sort of inexplicable. Um, And um, that's what we have to learn to live with rather than hoping that we can um, find uh, Eden. Around the corner and I think the one advantage of being a traveler perhaps is that I've spent a lot of my time going to beautiful places which every traveler's hope and every travel agent's poster portrays as paradise or Shangri-La whether it's Bali or Tahiti or the Seychelles or Tibet Uh, and they may be Shangri-La to us only because we don't live there. I'm sure they're not to the people who live there who will tell us, oh, you know, the real Eden is New York City or, or San Francisco. Uh, and so I think, you know, the notion of paradise suggests limited vision, whereas the notion of reality is, suggests that we're engaging with the world as it really is.
0: Yeah, it's no coincidence, I think, that Moore's Utopia begins as a travelogue too, the, the story of Moore, Moore's meeting in I think it was in Ghent or Bruges so travel is key to this other places uh, Pico that you haven't been that you still want to go were you you weren't of course on your deathbed but as a traveler you might have thought to yourself well I'm never going to get to travel again if this COVID thing continues uh, were you regretful of, 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 of opportunities of invitations of trips that you didn't take in 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 the COVID years
1: Well, I wasn't mourning that because I've been lucky enough to see most of the places I've long wanted to see. And so and I don't believe in bucket lists because nothing kills a trip as much as an expectation. But at the same time, there's no uglier term than
0: bucket list, is there? I'm sure it would be more attractive if we could come up with a better word to describe it. Even
1: wish list or whatever. Yes, no, I agree with you. I always recoil when I see that bucket. Um, But I do also believe that the world is inexhaustible. And, uh, for example... Saudi Arabia is now accepting tourists. I, I'd love to go to Saudi Arabia tomorrow and I'm sure I would be stimulated and instructed by it. But if I don't go, I won't shed any tears because um, I feel, you know, I've, I've spent quite a lot of time uh, traveling, uh, traveling the globe. What about the politics, Pico? Uh, the, the, the
0: Middle East, Saudi Arabia, they've been in the news. A lot of people would say, well, I want to go there. I don't like their government. That came up in the World Cup in in Qatar, you went to Iran and and Israel, places that some people are deeply disturbed by. Should we as travelers be concerned with the politics of the place we visit, the politics of the place we
1: spend money? Well, the politics of the place where we spend money is a very vexed question. So I believe we should go to Tibet to see the reality on the ground there, even though the money we spend there will probably be going to the oppressors of Tibet, and I feel the same with Myanmar, and those are both places I've been to many, many times. But I think instead of being concerned with the politics of the place, we should be concerned with the reality of the place, the humanity of the place, and everything that gets lost when we only hear about politics. So for example, when I went to Iran, uh, certain of my neighbors um, were telling me, oh, you're crazy to go there on an American passport, it's so dangerous. And everybody who had been to Iran told, gave me one warning. They said, if you're going to Iran, you've got to be careful of one thing. Everyone's going to want to be your friend. Everyone's going to want to invite you to dinner, which is more or less the case, because Iranians are more than capable of distinguishing between American people and the American government. And when people are concerned about safety, I remember that when I began my life really as a journalist, 1980s, I was spending a lot of time in war zones in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, Philippines during its revolution, Cuba, when the Western world wasn't going there. Nothing bad ever happened to me. And then I came to Santa Barbara, one of the most privileged affluent gated c- cities on earth. and My house burnt down with me right next to it. Um, most terrible accidents happen uh, half within a half mile of home. And so I do worry that we're all getting the world in very mediated forms. And rather than sitting, sitting at home and pontificating about North Korea, I try to go and visit it. Uh, And it's not a pleasant place and it's not a reassuring place, but my concern, this is part of the title of The Half Known Life, is that when most of my friends in in the US hear the word North Korea, they see just one face, the face of the leader, not 25 million others, which is just what a totalitarian leader wants. And in most of the oppressed countries I go to, such as Tibet or uh, Myanmar, um, Mm -hmm. they're so grateful for tourists because we are the only people who can bring them news from the outside world and bring their stories out to, Our countries. So Saudi Arabia falls in the North Korea category for me. And I think for myself, you know, I'm lucky enough to live principally in Japan and the rest of the time in California, which are very comfortable, protected places. So when I travel, I want to go to unsettled, uncomfortable places and I, I, you know, to be shaken out of my uh, complacency. Because again, I will hear myself sitting here at home and talking about, let's say, universal values or a human reality. And nothing I say begins to apply to people in North Korea. And much of it probably doesn't apply to people in Saudi Arabia either. Uh, And so to go to North Korea is not to be sympathetic to its government and many of its deeply repressive policies. It's just to remind oneself there are 25 million people here and they are chafing at their own government much more than we are. And I think, you know, when we talk of North Korea, which is features in the second chapter of my book, What's always so scary about a place like North Korea is that its citizens are not allowed um, to know anything about the outside world. And that's why they're much more likely to launch a missile against us, because we're just an abstraction to them. They can't see our faces or hear our voices. So that's what makes it such a scary place. But when I come back to the U.S., I think what's even scarier is that so many people in the U.S. know so little about North Korea. And we don't have a government that refuses to allow us to leave our hometowns or that will execute us if uh, we so much as glance at a foreign newspaper. In other words, we have no excuse for being ignorant about the world. And as one of the stronger and freer places on earth, I feel people in the United States almost morally obliged to go and visit Iran, Israel, North Korea, instead of sitting at home just talking about them.
0: They may need to go and get a passport first, Pico. I'm not sure how many Americans no, even have passports. Yeah, so leave that one for the moment. Let,
1: let's end with
0: some stuff on on technology. Um, we've done a number of shows last year on this thing called the metaverse, virtual reality. Mark Zuckerberg has the idea that we want to live on the internet, and wear these strange goggles. Is that travel, Pico, or is that an avoidance of travel?
1: It's travel. But um, all the images in the world never can add up to real life. And seeing things in two dimensions is not always a very good preparation for a world that takes place in three dimensions. And I always worry, and this is partly what animated my book, that um, concentrating on small screens, we can never see the larger picture. In other words, technology has given us so much, including the chance for me to talk to you right now, but it doesn't teach us how to make wise and discerning use of technology, and for that, we have to go offline. Which is why so many people in Silicon Valley around you um, take internet sabbaths or do digital detox. So one way or another, they know they can only do the best justice to technology by being away from it and 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 re- recollecting their, their their priorities and proportions. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not the right person to talk to because I'm relatively untechnol to. Lo- untechnological. For example, I've never in my life used a cell phone. And that's not something I recommend to anybody else, but it's a reflection in my case.
0: Say that again. You've never used a cell phone.
1: No. And and I remember when I was prior to our talk today, I was told, you know, make sure not to use your cell phone. I thought that's going to be easy because <laughs> I never had a cell phone. I don't even know how to turn one on. Just because I feel for two reasons, I suppose. On the one hand, I feel I have enough data And distraction in my life already it's hard enough for me to begin to process everything as it is and secondly i'm keenly aware that many people have to have uh, a cell phone to keep up with their family and to do their jobs and for me i almost need not to have one to keep up with my family and do my job in other words in order to write in an undistracted state i don't want something (laughs) vibrating in my pocket or giving me beeps every second and in order to be with my wife who's Sitting uh, across the room with me, um, I, I want to give my full attention to her. I don't want to be, uh, you know, answering texts while we're trying to have a conversation. So, it's uh, as I say, it's not the easiest way to, to live in the world, and it's not for most people. But it's my own way of trying to ensure that I don't become a slave to technology.
0: So speaking of being a, a slave to technology, Pico, um, we had the the Royal Astronomer um, Martin Rees on the mm-hmm. show as an old mm-hmm. friend of mine. Uh, and he was talking about this new James Webb telescope, our ability to see the universe more clearly. Again, you're you're not a you're not a, a techie kind of guy. I don't suppose you've had a look through the the Webb telescope. Uh, but is that intriguing? What do you make of our obsession, our increasing obsession, not just with space, but with science fiction, and with some of the world's wealthiest men, the Elon Musk's and the Jeff Bezos is of the world wanting to colonize space is, is earth that boring that should, we should want to look outside it
1: I, I'm, I, you know I think those people that you mentioned we all know there are many imperfections but they've radically transformed our lives in many very very good ways and so if they think that that's the next horizon to observe um, uh, yeah they know much more than I do and um, I'm happy for them to see if they can expand our boundaries. I was so excited, by the way, to see that you uh, were hosting Sir Martin Rees because uh, he's the one, him. Do you know him? No, I don't. I just know Do the you name. I'll
0: introduce. He's an incredible guy. I mean, he's a remarkable man. His energy and enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, you
1: know, and, and
0: coming back to the, coming back to this issue of of of, of the sacred and and the awesome nature of things. Um, It seems to me, I don't want to be speaking on behalf of Martin, but he's awed by the universe. Do you think that looking through the the web telescope, Pico, might make you religious, might make you
1: recognize the sacred? I can't think of a better way. No, I love that. And I think that's the reason why uh, I've often got excited when I see comments from Sir Martin Rees, because they chime with those from Einstein and many great scientists who know, as Thomas Merton did, that really the point of, of research and exploration is to widen our sense of mystery rather than to uh, diminish it. And in fact, when you were mentioning um, the Royal Astronomy, I was, I was thinking how um, for 10 years recently, every November, I traveled with the Dalai Lama across Japan. I was by his side every minute of his working day. And I remember how each morning when I would go into his hotel room at 8.30 in the morning to start his official day, I would notice a telescope wherever he travels in the world, he has a telescope pointing out the window because he knows that every place he lands is affording him um, a new vision of the heavens. And it's a perfect code for a traveler, but perfect code for really any human being to remind us that wherever we happen to be, it's affording us um, a new angle on on things. uh, And and that the world, as you've been suggesting, never never gets boring or predictable. So I love what telescopes are about um, and I'm grateful to people who want to explore um, outer space as well as inner. Though To go back to Thomas Merton, he did deliver this wonderful line. (laughs) um, What's the good of trying to get to the moon when we haven't even crossed the abyss within ourselves? In other words, he didn't want space exploration to take away from the more fundamental questions that we so often try to dodge, which are going to make our lives and the people around us better or worse. you know, essential things about kindness and responsibility to the environment and to the community. So he doesn't want us to be so caught up in the external that we ignore the internal, but nor do we want to avoid the external. And I'm I'm so grateful that science has made incomparable advances in my lifetime. And I think all of us are, for example, in the context of health. Um, I'm somebody who has asthma. I'm not sure I'd be alive without the latest medication.
0: Well, let's end with... 2023 the new book the half known life in search of paradise is just out but your life isn't coming to an end pico um anything and i i want to avoid that horrible phrase bucket list but any if we if i have the good fortune to have you back on the show this time next year in 2024 any any goals this year anything that is unknown that you'd like to know more about this year
1: Well for me my great adventure is sitting at the desk and your writing always takes me to places I can't predict and however clear the outline I've made within the third paragraph the outline is upended and I'm being taken to surprising places so to be honest I've actually completed I hope my next book about my 31 years with these Benedictine monks. Maybe it will be out in 2024 but whether or not it is sort of the companion piece to this book, because as you were saying, this book is about traveling around the world, thinking about what paradise is and isn't. And that's about being within a walled garden, um, which the monks would say is paradise. Visitors like myself have to think what paradise really is. But um, so that's the book I hope, I think I've almost completed it, but I hope fully to complete it this year. And maybe I will talk to you in 2024.